But when those things, so when our more negative, as it were, emotions uh, begin to sort of predominate uh, and we feel we're kind of out of balance and we're not having enough moments of the more positive emotions, um, then I think we're kind of in, in a problem. Welcome to Forever Young, the health and well-being podcast from Lanzarov. My name is Mario Pedazzoli, and in every episode, join me in conversation with a variety of health experts and special guests as we explore what it means to live well. We may not find the secret to eternal youth, but join me on our quest as we explore just what it means to live a balanced, healthy, and happy life. Hello again, and welcome. This episode is being recorded during Mental Health Awareness Week, running from the 10th to the 16th of May, and we hope that this podcast, in its own small way, contributes to the aims and purposes of the campaign. Put simply, to get people talking about their feelings, their mental health, and certainly reducing the stigma that can stop people from asking for help in the first place. Mental health, as defined by the World Health Organization, is a state of well-being in which the individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. The part we're concerned about today is can cope with the normal stresses of life, and this includes our emotional, psychological and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel and act, and it also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others and make choices. People's perception, after all, is in effect their reality, and whilst maybe most can cope, it is those in need of support and help that this campaign is designed for. Joining me today is our special guest and consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Jonathan Garabet. Jonathan works privately and in the NHS as a specialist in the fields of both general adult psychiatry and medical psychotherapy. Jonathan provides individualized bespoke care and is a passionate believer in understanding the whole person rather than just the diagnosis, essential in improving long-term emotional and mental health and overall well-being. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mary. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Jonathan, just looking earlier, the stats do not make great reading. Um, one in four people will experience a mental health problem of some kind each year in England. Um, maybe these stats are underplaying the real picture. Uh, what's going on here? And in fact, is this a worsening trend? Well, the the one in four number has been around for a very long time now. So I don't think that that in itself is a worsening trend, but it is, of course, you know, a shockingly high rate with regards to the number of people that are suffering with a mental health disorder. And particularly when you then compare that to the number of people that are actually engaged in treatment, uh, which is much lower, then I think we see that there's a real gap with regard mm. to um, the um, health of the nation with regards to, to mental health. So I think what's clear is that over the past year, the pandemic is probably going to push that number up. With that number, as I say, has, has sort of been around for a, a, you know, a long time, probably a decade or more. Mm. 
um, and the one in four campaign has been there. But what we've seen over the course of, as the pandemic has rolled out, is that the rates of mental health difficulties across the board, whether that's depression, anxiety, substance abuse, uh, these sorts of things, have all gone up, really. And so I think that we we are, you know, from both the direct effects of the anxiety about the pandemic, also the restrictions that have been put in place, uh, I think we are heading for a worsening, yes. Uh, and actually, something you mentioned earlier there, the difference between this stat and the number of people actually receiving some form of therapy, there's a, there's a disconnect almost. Is there a stigma around discussing mental health? Um, and, and is this a gender issue as well, actually? Um, men are notoriously poor at talking about, well, anything really. Um, well, I, there? I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think that there is definitely a gender divide, yes, so that there's traditionally a, a sort of much greater proportion of uh, females engaged in treatment compared to to males. And if we look at suicide rates, um, the NHS sees a lot of patients with suicidality. And I mean, I used to run a service of personality disorder patients that one of the main aims was to reduce down suicidality. But my service, as most services of, of that sort of kind, actually had very, very few men in it. That men would present more with um, substance use or potentially sort of anger issues, these sorts of things that even when they do then seek help are often turned away or redirected to sort of uh, alternative services rather than uh, engaged in uh, mainstream or specialised sort of mental health care outside of the, the the substance use ones. So I, I think there's multiple different um, barriers to accessing treatment and that from at the severe end of the spectrum, the, the male um, problems, as it were, the male sort of mental health sort of presentations tend to be ones that are not all that well um, addressed in the NHS. So um, I think Mental Health Awareness Week is a really important week across the board, but particularly with getting men talking about mental health. Now, it's not just a male-female divide. There's massive cultural divides too. So certain cultures will... uh, find talking about mental health far more stigmatizing than than others. And I would say that uh, a sort of the Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of culture has generally shifted on this, but there are other cultures that are, um, I think, lagging behind. So I see a lot of people from the Orthodox Jewish community. They talk about, you know, severe stigma within that community, mm-hmm. I think, within um, other communities as well, whether that's um, the sort of South Asian or um, uh, Muslim communities. I think each have their own particular way of expressing distress and expressing Mm -hmm. uh, a need for help. It's often said that in, for example, in some Asian communities, um, people express their mental health difficulties through the body more. And so it may be that people are presenting with bodily pain 
when in fact we're dealing with depression. And so it's quite a nuanced thing to try to understand, well, how do these things mm. uh, present? Because, you know, mental health is such a wide-reaching thing that people don't normally present saying, I've just got mental health problems. Mm. They tend to present with some sort of emotional problem. So they say, I feel, you know, unhappy in some way. I feel sad. I feel stressed. I feel anxious. Um, I'm irritable. But physical health, physical pain massively overlaps with mental um, health and men uh, mental pain. And so it's really not unusual at all to present with, say, back pain or gastrointestinal upset or these sorts of things. And of course, actually, it's not just that these mental health symptoms are being uh, sort of symbolically expressed in that way, there is an overlap that if you've got depression and you have some sort of, you know, uh, back issue, you are perhaps more likely to have a lower pain threshold. You're more likely to be sensitized to pain. That's and so experience the pain at a lower threshold compared to somebody that's not so depressed. Um, and I mean, sort of the, the gut brain link is also another area that's being increasingly sort of understood, or perhaps I should say, we increasingly understand just how little we understand about it, because it's fascinating, you know, the whole world of the, the microbiome, this, you know, world of, you know, the, the microorganisms that live in the gut and how these actually have a massive link to the brain. And so, um, you know, presentations with, uh, you know, what we call IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, um, in the past may have been sort of written off as this is just anxiety, you know, kind of leading to gut issues. But but actually, I think it's it's far more complicated than that. And what I think is a bit of a shame about Mental Health Awareness Week is that it needs to be so separate when in fact, actually, I think what we're moving towards is more of an integrated model of integrating mental and physical health. There is very often a mental component to any physical health issue, be it cancer, be it, uh, you know, kind of heart disease, be it diabetes, you know, mm. they all have significant mental health issues. Um, and so I think that uh, mental health, I mean, the sort of the motto of the Royal College of Psychiatry is there is no health without mental health. And I, I would say mm. any um, condition that potentially impairs health potentially impairs mental health too and we should think about it um, in that sort of holistic way well that, that's uh, that's fascinating and actually a, a real insight into the consequences of not talking about it actually and and i suppose there, there are some deep-rooted cultural issues there and you know i, I think here in in generations gone by it's, it's about being stoic and stiff up a lip and so on but you can mm. see the consequences of not discussing these things that can be quite severe yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Victorian model of stiff upper lip, I think, mm. you know, sort of, you know, it is changing, which is sort of good. It does lead to sometimes a, a, a generational divide. I mean, I see many young patients who will sort of complain that their parents don't get it. And that, you know, it's difficult to talk to them about their emotions and these sorts of things. Mm. But of course, you know, their parents had parents that were even more mm. stiff up 
you know, and you know, I think these things do take generations to change. Mm. But but that can lead to a, a sort of um, one of the things that contributes to a sort of a sense of isolation and loneliness, particularly within you know a multi generational family, is that you know our our sort of younger members of the family tend to be more uh, emotionally literate, but that can lead them feeling even more emotionally isolated because there's no one to talk to within the yeah or because they feel, yeah or because they feel that um they're sort of the older members of the family don't automatically talk in that way now what yes. i find is that actually if you facilitate a discussion about that often the you know, older generations are actually quite capable and quite open to to doing that but they're just not so used to doing it whereas you know i think that the the younger generations have they've had this embedded in their in their lives you know from school mm. you know uh films like inside out you know just a film about you know all the emotions going on inside mm. of the mind of a little girl these sorts of things you know, these are really sort of um big advances yes but, big steps forward. yeah but that's that's not what older generations had mm. so um given the times we are in uh you know mental health awareness week as well we need to talk about the pandemic um and millions of us literally have experienced have struggled uh physically but of course mentally as well or seen a loved one struggle um mm. I think you alluded to this earlier. Has this deepened the issue generally? I think so, absolutely. I mean, I think the the pandemic has uh, led to worsening mental health through a number of different routes. So one is a direct effect of COVID on the brain, because COVID is not just you know affecting our lungs; it does affect potentially all sort of organs in the body, uh, including the brain. Um, and there's a, a recent study from the University of Oxford just showing actually the remarkably high rates of uh, neuropsychiatric, so neurological and psychiatric conditions associated with contracting COVID. Um, and, you know, whether that's depression or, and sort of anxiety or whether that's actually psychotic illnesses, these sorts of things. So there's a direct effect of COVID on the brain there's secondary effects so if you've been in intensive care this is an incredibly you know kind of uh distressing uh life-threatening experience so you might have some trauma symptoms post-traumatic stress disorder associated with that um but there's also the i think societal effects so people are losing jobs people aren't mm. you know, kind of able to sort of i suppose just rely on their usual coping strategies. Mm. Uh, I think this is what's really increased the, the rates up is that that's, you know, for the majority of people that have not been directly affected by COVID in a sort of, you know, in its severe form, I think uh, they have, however, been affected by the societal impact. So even if they've not lost their job, they've not been going into work, so they've not been having, you know, the sort of outlet of going and you know sort of chatting with their colleagues yes there's water cooler moments just uh, yeah mm. and i think particularly the impact of homeschooling 
that you know I think many of us joke about, but actually it's incredibly difficult to sort of have the nuclear family all just sort of confined under one roof for months on end and actually needing to be sort of trying to keep on top of everything as well as uh, schooling the children at home. And I've seen a lot of patients that that has led to incredible amounts of stress. Um, so I'm sure these are things that we can all uh, in, to some degree relate to. It's been an incredibly exhausting period, I think, for the, for the nation as a whole. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, what are, the, what are the signs? I mean, we talked there about the contributing factors to mental health issues, but what are the signs that we should look for uh, amongst our family and colleagues and friends? Well, if we think about what, you know, what is mental health, and you gave that definition, which I always think is a sort of quite aspirational de definition of, of good mental health. But if we think, well, what, how are they normally? You know, what are they kind of normally like? And then what are the changes from that? So, you know, for example, I, I, I will always sort of uh, prioritise thinking about sleep because sleep is such an important part of physical and mental health. So what's sleep being like is, uh, you know, the first mm -hmm. question mind usually you know because if sleep has worsened it tells us something is going on because increased stress leads to problems sleeping but problems sleeping lead to increased stress you know it becomes mm. a big kind of key ingredient so think about sleep think about the let's say sort of emotional palate you know that normally we've got you know sort of lots of different sort of colors of emotion that we might be expressing sort of uh, during the day, during the week, these sorts of things, has that narrowed? So have people become increasingly irritable or increasingly withdrawn, increasingly anxious, these sorts of things? You know, mental health, I think, can be thought of as about having the right balance. It's not about having no anger or no anxiety mm. or, you know, no stress. All of those things are actually really really important from an evolutionary point of view but when those things so when our more negative as it were emotions uh begin to sort of predominate uh and we feel we're kind of out of balance and we're not having enough moments of the more positive emotions um then i think we're kind of in in a problem mm -hmm. and this idea of balance i think can be uh extended as well to you know how we think about our coping strategies so it's really important to think, well, how do we cope with stress? And ideally, we have a number of different ways we cope with stress. Now, in Britain, a lot of people cope with stress to some degree by having a cup of tea or having a pint at the end of the day or these sorts of things. But if that becomes the only way you can cope with stress so that you, you know, are then addicted to caffeine or you're you know increasing up your alcohol usage these sorts of things it's telling you that the stress is increasing up and you don't actually have a, a wide enough range of different coping strategies so sort of a rigidity of coping strategy is really sort of uh, an important sign too so so we we've seen the signs we've maybe reflected but it, it's difficult to intervene isn't it um, I mean, what advice do you give to us generally if we, if we if we see someone close to us, as I say, friend, family, colleague, how, how should we respond? How best to go about this without 
make it I don't know awkward or, or just thinking better of it? Well, I, I would first of all challenge yourself as to why why does it feel awkward? You know what feels awkward mm. about it? Because this is where some of the stigma I think comes in. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, I think we've all got an emotional world and we all struggle with it to some degree. So I think we should begin to sort of think, well, in order to help this person, first of all, I need to kind of challenge my own, you know, my own assumptions, my own judgments, these sorts of things. But I think one of the first things to do is to try to not come across as critical. So, you know, if we're living with somebody and they're increasingly irritable, it's the last thing that they want to hear, you know, if you're sort of criticising them. But if you can, if, can express it through uh, concern to say, you know, I'm worried that you seem really stressed, you know, or I'm worried that you don't seem to be sleeping that well at the moment, I think you know, that's a, sort of a good first step rather than, you know, I think uh, almost adding to their burden of stress by saying, you know, you're very irritable or you seem, you know, you seem so stressed all the time, you don't have time for, you know, the family, these sorts of things. Because through, if you think about the subjective experience of that person that is potentially stressed, you know, that can feel like an, you know, almost like an added burden that now you're putting onto their plate that Mm. they're doing another thing wrong, as it were. So I think, think about, can that person talk to somebody? And it might not be you, Mm. but you might want to suggest that they talk to their GP or they talk to their friend or Mm. these sorts of things. And probably Um, it's often easier to talk to a third party, such as a GP. It might be easier because there's none of the emotional attachment. Yeah, but I think, you know, I wouldn't uh, underestimate that just the, the power of, you know, kind of good emotional relationships in you know, the majority mm-hmm. of people in the world not need to go into a formal therapy mm-hmm. in order to cope with, um, you know, emotional difficulties, but they do need some sort of outlet. And, you know, for many of us, it's a verbal outlet and whether that's, you know, kind of going to the the priest or you know the the gp or talking with a friend or whatever it might be there's you know there's different ways of uh talking about things and i think that's that you know that's different for different people so try and understand you know from that person's subjective point of view how do they tend to sort of express their difficult you know their difficult emotions and I think this is, again, where some generational divide might come in because, you know, a lot of, you know, sort of teenagers may, for example, be just talking with friends online. And, you know, it's difficult for the family to really understand that because they, they don't, you know, they don't actually see that they're on some online, mm-hmm. uh, you know, forum actually giving each other mutual support. They think that they're just wasting their time online or, or these mm-hmm. sorts of things. So think about what's, you know, what are the kind of you know, the, the outlets that that person has available to them? How do you kind of widen that? Mm-hmm. But I think it's not just verbal outlets that can be helpful. I mean, emotions 
Uh, and, and generally speaking, most mental health problems are problems with emotions one way or another. So happiness, sadness, anger, irritability, you know, these sorts of things. Um, you know, emotions make us want to do something. And I think one of the sort of problems with the restrictions of the pandemic is that what we were able to do was so dramatically reduced. So, you know, if we think, well, this person, you know, likes exercise, okay, how can we help create some space in the day for them to do more exercise? You know, is that a way of them coping with, you know, their stress? You know, this person likes to paint, that person likes to, you know, I'm not creative at all, but it's interesting to to think that um, there's creativity in the act of perceiving art, not just making it. So just going to a gallery or going to a play or even watching a movie, these sorts of things, there is a creative act that happens in the brain when we do that that gives us some degree of emotional expression. Yeah. So trying not to force it into well, you have to talk about this immediately I think is is helpful. But just thinking, you know, how can you get these emotions expressed in one way or another? Mm. And obviously with, you know, the closing of sports facilities and these sorts of things, many people's coping strategies have just narrowed during the time, but hopefully they're reopening now. Yes. And actually, you're right, our, our outlets were restricted severely and, and, and it forced us all online uh, more than before uh, social media gets blamed for everything it seems but it's it's thanks to social media that uh, we're able to communicate this campaign for instance getting the message through uh, and I think um, awareness has improved generally speaking enormously as a result of that that said um, parents amongst us but we're all aware of the increasing online abuse harassment bullying um, and there are those parents that are extremely concerned at how they're children might be affected. So um, what part does social media actually play in affecting people's mental health? And what can we do about that? Well, I think, I think social media, as you say, you know, it, it can play a really positive part, but it all can also be negative. And I, I would say the rule of thumb, you know, if it wouldn't be acceptable in person, it shouldn't be acceptable on social media. Mm. Um, but I think that it's unfortunately, you know, things happen in a much more anonymized way on social media and a much more underground way on social media. And so this is where it can, you know, really be the, the harm can be sort of insidious. Um, I think that um, really important to use social media to connect, but not as a replacement for, you know, actual face to face when we're allowed or, you know, Mm. uh, in-person connections because I think that it it actually becomes a rather poor substitute for connecting and it doesn't actually give us our bodies and our minds what we really need what we need is you know a certain degree of in-person connection with each other we need to see each other's facial expressions we need actual proper eye contact with each other where we then you know this is the basis of empathy Mm. that we actually feel properly connected to we feel that we connect to others and we you know are able to properly tune into each other in person a lot more than we are you know 
sort of online. Having said that, you know, I think some people do find online connections as a an easier way to talk about difficult things. Mm. You know, there are advantages to beginning conversations. You know, not in person, and and you know, I think that we shouldn't be saying in person is good and online is sort of is not yeah. but again it's about balance and what we would don't i think sort of want is replacing all in person connections with online now we've all had to do that to some degree over the course of the past year and i think a lot of people are getting actually anxious about sort of reemerging into the world and reemerging with yes. sort of, uh proper in person mm-hmm. connections and I think trying to kind of understand that, trying to tune into yourself and think, why is that? And you know, there's a general principle when you're dealing with anxiety, which is that anxiety tends to lead to avoidance, and avoidance tends to worsen the anxiety. Mm. And so, you know, just really trying to think, okay, well, mm. I might not be able to go to the pub and see, you know, all my friends on this the day of reopening or whatever, because it feels too anxiety provoking. But staying in and not seeing anybody is probably not the right thing either. And so how do I begin to just push the the sort of the comfort limit, as it were, so that I can begin to open up my sort of sphere of opportunity of, you know. This is a process. It's not like flicking a switch, is it? I mean, we've had a year of uh, that we've never had before. And and so I guess for us all to uh, turn up on the 17th of May when hospitality fully reopens. We can't just pick up where we left off. No, and I think that there are lots of people that actually feel quite anxious about doing that because what's happened is that, you know, everybody has a certain degree of anxiety and the pandemic restrictions have enabled people with higher degrees of anxiety to retreat more and more into, you know, their bubble as it were. And then all of a sudden there's an expectation things should be back to normal. And I think that that, you know, expectation makes people even more self-conscious that they don't feel they can do it. A lot of the time with anxiety, what we're dealing with is a degree of um, self-consciousness that, you know, is then projected out onto others so that you think that other people are going to judge me in this way. And usually that's not the case. Usually the person that is, you know, kind of judging you most harshly is yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the restrictions of the pandemic have led to a kind of almost reduction of reality testing as it were. So, you know, you've just been within your own home and you haven't had the daily uh, sort of, challenge of you know going to work going to school seeing friends going on a commute and actually thinking okay these people are not you know judging me in this way and so for a lot of people anxiety has sort of stored up during this time and that um yeah sort of going back into the world afterwards is becoming a really anxiety provoking uh sort of task so i think taking it slowly but thinking how do i make sure i don't avoid the things that make me anxious is really really important so uh well actually let's talk about the coping mechanisms how, you know how do we cultivate happiness habits because it, 
there, there are habits that we can um, that, that can help us. You mentioned exercise earlier, for example, but um, any others? Let, let's talk about these. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people have written about, you know, different sort of pillars of health. And, you know, I think it's the same actually for, you know, physical and mental health. So, you know, sleep, you know, kind of how much you sleep, what you eat, uh, you know, how much you move and essentially what you engage in. These are the, the, the sort of four areas that I would think about. So getting good quality sleep is easier said than done, but that's something that needs to be prioritized. And that's something that I have certainly been trying to reprioritize for me because, mm. like many people, I was uh, essentially burning the candle uh, at two ends and, um, you know, burning out in many ways. So uh, I would start with sleep and then think, okay, diet is very important. I'm certainly not a specialist in, in that area, but generally speaking, you know, um, processed foods are not good for physical health or mental health so you know moving away from processed foods and high sugar foods that you know and, and when i say sugar actually you know high carbohydrate uh, can also lead to essentially a bit of a, a a high and then a crash and what you want is a sort of more stable uh sort of blood sugar during the day and you know that leads to more stable mood how much you move so when we say exercise i like many feel like oh i just don't have enough time to exercise during the day but of course there's a big difference between going for you know a 10k run mm. and doing nothing and sitting at a desk all day so think about right this is where i'm at at the moment exercise wise and then i just I feel I need to begin to move more. And so, you know, these wearables, like, you know, I've got this aura ring on at the moment. And I can see that. You are measuring your sleep. I am measuring my sleep. Yeah, 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 absolutely. This is one of the things that I need to sort of work on. So measurement is actually um, something that has become increasingly possible in all these various... Yes. Nice plug for aura rings there. Whether it's the aura or the whoop or the Fitbit, <laughs> whatever it might be. But... Um, you know, measuring things, so measuring your sleep, measuring your heart rate variability, measuring your, you know, kind of calorie intake, whatever. Of course, you can get obsessional about it. But I think if you've got something that you want to work on, it's it's mm. good to try to measure. And then essentially, you're in a, uh, a process of, you know, carrying out mini experiments. If I do this, is my sleep better? If I do that, is my heart rate variability better? You know, these sorts of things. Yes. Yeah, helps us with a learning cycle. Um, but yeah, so sleep, you know, what you eat, how much you move. So I was, I was going to say that, you know, it's a big difference between doing nothing all day and going for a 10K run. You know, let's move from doing nothing to, you know, just getting up and moving around every half an hour. Yes. So you really increase up your steps and that, that has a, a real impact on your physiology. And most people are measuring steps now, aren't they? And, and, and they are. Yes, what what gets measured gets gets done really, and and uh, and I think we're just creating better habits as a result. And then I I would add to that something about engagement. So how do we engage our mind in productive things? How do we engage our emotion in different ways? How do we engage with you know relationships, whether that's online or in person? 
how do we engage physically because actually physical contact is so important i think this is a really interesting thing that the pandemic's shown us is that you know zoom can be you know amazingly facilitative and yet at the same time a lot of things are lost and so you know i would think that trying to think right what do i need to engage in more okay how can i essentially use all of my emotional sort of palette so that okay i've got anger well i'll get that out on the squash court mm-hmm. you know i've got anxiety okay well that will drive me to get this done but also that may help you know uh, sort of uh drive me forward with you know these goals or this sort of exercise or you know these sorts of things i think trying to reflect on what's going on inside what emotions do you have and be non-judgmental about it i think is a really really sort of important starting point mm. of uh good mental health i think it's a a common starting point of any psychotherapy and what we'll see you know very often is that people have judgments about their emotions they say i shouldn't feel angry i shouldn't feel anxious these sorts of things and actually there's perfectly good reasons to feel angry or perfectly good reasons to feel anxious mm. that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that they can feel but beginning to just reduce down that judgment is important and of course there are ways of doing this like mindfulness and meditation that have that sort of embedded in mm. though not for everybody but some sort of reflective time some sort of solitude and getting more comfortable with solitude because i think that's something that's has gone uh, that a lot of time we are so bombarded with tasks and you know inputs from around you know sort of our our gadgets our phones our emails etc that we don't have any proper solitude time but solitude time i think is actually the first requirement to properly introspect to properly tune in and think what's going on inside that then that enables us to to sort of monitor that in a sort of non-judgmental way so i think listening to you jonathan there's been a real benefit and an education listening to you but let's talk about what you do and the benefits of therapy and how crucial is it to reach out to professional help it depends on the person and depends on the circumstance so you know for me it's absolutely crucial that i have my own therapy because this is how i can sort of survey my inner internal emotional landscape which is what i use as my almost like sonar you know for picking up the emotional landscape of somebody else that it's very important to be able to understand my own internal world if i'm to try to imaginatively sort of empathize with somebody else's so you know i have my own personal therapy i have done for many years but i don't think that everybody should have therapy but i do think that everybody should have some sort of space for reflection space for um introspection in some sort of way i mean with therapy i would also say that there's many different sorts of therapy and they can each have their value for different sorts of situations so we can think of you know very behaviorally focused therapy so let's say i want to give up smoking okay this is how we do it you know and there's a very clear behavioral task there there's more supportive therapies so say grief counseling you just need a space to talk 
to let out, you know, sort of some sort of emotions and that that in itself can be helpful. Then there's the more exploratory therapies, the ones that sort of say, well, maybe I'm, you know, I've got internal conflicts about this and that, and I need to understand what is it that I really want in life? You know, what's really meaningful for me? You know, these sorts of things. So, I mean, the majority of uh, therapies that have a good evidence base for the depression and anxiety, sort of what we used to call neurotic type mental illnesses, these days are, are within the kind of cognitive behavioral realm. So this is where, you know, it takes as a starting point, you know, how we think about certain things, how that links to our behaviors, how that links mm. to our emotions. And that, you know, uh, for me can at times be oversimplistic, but can actually be very helpfully focused and is incredibly helpful for many people in a really sort of short period of time. So people can have six to eight sessions or 12 sessions of CBT, and it can be really transformative to help them get over a you know, particular kind of area of difficulty in their life. Then we think at the other end, people can have more you know, long-term psychoanalytic therapies that may go on for many years, but they're really trying to get a different thing out of that. And that's, I think, more of a lifestyle choice of, you know, in the same way as going to the gym every day is. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I want to be able to really try to optimize my mental well-being and mental health. I want to really try and know myself in this sort of way. And, you know, that can be, you know, incredibly helpful. But obviously that has its own um uh, restrictions with regards to who can access that in terms of time and you know, finances, these sorts of things. So um, you mentioned your own personal therapy uh, that obviously helps you, but what are the rules that you generally live by, Jonathan? Um, <laughs> well, I mentioned sleep. These days, one of the rules I live by is actually try to think about my priorities because I'm guilty, like many people are, of trying to do too much. And so I have to think, right, well, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. They have to be my priority. That takes an awful lot of time and energy. And after I've dealt with that, then actually maybe there's not all that much time in the evening for a a late supper, et cetera, et cetera, if I'm then going to be waking up at 4 a.m. in the night with them. So is trying to essentially accept reality. I would say that's the rule that I live by, is to really try to be brutally honest with myself in terms of what can be achieved, how can I achieve it, you know, and, you know, what is the reality of the situation and work from there. And then you have to think, right, how do I prioritise? What are the most important things I do after that? So in your introduction, Marco, I didn't... interrupt but i think that introduction came from the podcast we did previously actually since then i have i would say sadly but the reality is i did i've left the nhs so i'm only working in the private sector now and this is partly because i was just trying to do too much um so uh yeah i think scaling back being more realistic with uh what can be achieved and what's the cost of every opportunity because every opportunity to you know go out to dinner as nice as it is you know from the 17th i'm going to be <laughs> very eager to go out to dinner but it's got a cost it's got a cost in terms of how much sleep i get it's got a cost of what's the knock-on effect for my 
you know, physical and mental well-being, you know, mm. after that, etc. And it's not to say I don't want to do that, but you just, I think, need to look at it objectively, assess it, and then, you know, it can be you that's in control of that sort of uh, decision. And I think this is the case for many people with the burnout is that they're trying to do too much in sort of too many different sort of areas. So we hear, you know, all the things in the papers about, you know, the investment banks and people working, you know, 16 hours a day and these sorts mm-hmm. of things. And, you know, I I have no problem with people doing that as long as they accept that that comes at a cost. Mm-hmm. And so if 16 hours a day means that the other eight hours is just spent sleeping, okay, well, that's oh, what their life is going to be like. That well, comes really imbalanced there. Yeah, absolutely. But then it's it's a balance that people have to choose. So I yes. think that you know, essentially, I would work as a you know psychiatrist, but also psychotherapist, of helping people look at their life in a realistic way, and then make realistic choices and own those. Because what I think often happens is people feel pressured into things they feel that they've lost control of their lives and they are just you know sort of fighting to keep up and i think what you want sort of to do is to give everybody uh the opportunity to feel that they are living their lives in the way that they want mm. to lead jonathan you uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you um you've given us real food for thought today and uh Thank you for helping uh, to shine a light on the, on the issues uh, and Mental Health Awareness Week. Uh, for anyone that would like to reach out on any of the topics we've discussed today, uh, please know you can email in confidence to lanzerhoff at theartsclub.co.uk. And if you'd like to be connected directly with Jonathan, uh, we would be delighted to do so. Um, Jonathan, thank you again. And... Uh, Well, no doubt, see you soon. And uh, thanks again for your time today. Thank you, Mario. Take care. Thanks, Jonathan. All the best.